glad to have my family here uh, with me as I do that. And I tell you, I'm, I'm looking forward to Friday. Friday's the day that I walk across that stage and they say, you're done. And that's a big day for me. Uh, and I, I've had to do a lot of work. My family has uh, been the reason I've been able to do that. And so I, I just want to thank them for making that possible. And, and Mike and everyone here at Trinity that has been a part of this journey with me. I've really enjoyed it. This morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Amos, chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And, and we're going to uh, come in on kind of the, the positive part of Amos. If you spend any time reading in Amos, it is, it is a, a pretty heavy book uh, as you're going through it. Mike has preached several uh, sermons so far out of Amos. And Amos is called as a, a, a seer, a, as a speaker on behalf of God to the kingdom of Israel. And they haven't done right. They've been living uh, against God's word and against God's will. And Amos has been called to go. And for eight and a half uh, chapters of the book of Amos, he's been uh, expounding on God's judgment against them and, and things that they've done wrong. So Amos hasn't really been well received so far. But here at the end of Amos, we have a message of hope. God doesn't just lay it on them and walk away. God ends the book here through Amos with a message of hope. And Mike read that earlier. So what I'm going to do is as we go through our message in your Bibles, we'll read from chapter uh, 9, verses 11 through 15. It's also there in your note-taking guide if you want to follow along. But I've been reading here through Amos and, and studying this and trying to look at it in the context of what we've been preaching on Sunday mornings for the last few months. We did a, a series out of Micah uh, 6.8, and it said, what does the Lord require of you? And Mike talked about that for, for several weeks there, where we talked about what the Lord requires out of us. He said to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with God. We, we did a sermon series about Jesus is greater, that Jesus is truly the hope that God wants us to have, and, and that we come to him in faith. And now we've done this series on back to the basics about integrity and, and, and justice and mercy. That these are the kind of character traits that God wants his people to have. So looking at that in light of this, I keyed in on Micah 9.8. It's just a little bit before what our, our uh, sermon verses are here. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. But then... Here's the promise. He says, nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. God always has a faithful remnant. There's always been a core group of people throughout the history of Israel that had never worshipped the other gods, that had lived in obedience, and it's to these people that he makes the promises that we're going to cling to this morning. To those who have lived out the things that God has called us to live. To those who have a relationship with him. And to those who live out the things that he has uh, commanded. I hope to say this morning that, that you're among those who live out the, the, the faithful life of God. And so you can cling to God's hope. So three kind of areas of God's hope, three effects of God's hope in our life that I want us to cover. 
I'm graduating on Friday. You know, I, I, I've, I've had to stick with the program. One of the first people that I met when I came here to Southern Wesley and is here today, and that's Dr. Gonlag. And she pulled out a piece of paper, and she said, now here's all the requirements that you have to meet before you can graduate. I hope you got that right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want anybody chasing me across the stage on Friday going, wait a minute, Richard, you, you, you didn't get it done. But there's a promise that comes with that. On Friday when I graduate, they will say, well done, here's your, here's your diploma. Actually, it's going to be a blank uh, diploma cover. I don't get the, the diploma until June. But they're going to say, Richard, you finished. Here's your reward. Here's what you get. And so this morning what God is saying in, in Amos is, for those of you who get with the program, for those of you who are faithful, here's your reward. Here's what you can look forward to. But this isn't just a hope for some time later. I believe this is our hope even for right now. The, the first thing that God says in Amos 9.11, it says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and I will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and live in, in all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. I will raise up the fallen booth. The first thing in your notes, God's hope rebuilds. God's hope rebuilds. I lived and pastored in West Virginia, in, in uh, Greenbrier County, West Virginia. And it was about uh, almost two years ago that uh, they, they said there's some rain coming and it's going to be a pretty heavy rain. We did not realize how bad the rain would be. It began to rain at a rate that I had never seen. The Greenbrier River began to rise. And uh, at one point, I was working with the fire department, and I was standing in the rain helping to fight a structure fire, and the rain was running that deep along the road where I was standing. There were people that, the, as the river began to rise, began to get trapped in their homes, and, and homes were washing down the river. And when all of this was over, they said it had been a thousand-year flood. It was horrible. And I called my, my pastor friend in the next town over that had been devastated by the river flooding as well. And I said, how's your church? He said, I don't know. I'm out of town, but I hear we had about three feet of water in the church. So I got down there to his church the next day. He had made it back in the town. And we walked into the front door of his church. And his church had literally been lifted up off of its foundation and set back down by the water. They took a bobcat. They drove through the front doors of the church with a bobcat and just took this tractor and ripped everything out of the church. It was a total disaster. We ended up, we had to take out the floors, we had to take out the drywall, we had to take out the ceilings. There was nothing but the frame of the church left. I took a picture of it and I posted it online on Facebook and that picture went all over the country and people said, this is what we have left. And the church began to ask the question, can the about 10 to 12 people that were there, can we really rebuild this church? And different groups began to come in, and, and people began all over the state began to pour in, and people all over the country began to pour in, and they began to rebuild this church. And slowly but surely, we, we got all of the mud out. There were dead trout up under the church. I've never seen such a thing. 
trout this big up under. There was a trout hatchery upstream from us. We had to get dead trout under, out from underneath the church. But we stood there, and the pastor said, well, we never really could use the baptistry all that well. So we took down the wall, and we moved this, and we moved that, and we rebuilt the stage a little bit different. And he said, you know, we can never plug anything up over here, and we really need to plug stuff up. So, because there were no walls, we just ran all new wiring. And he said the air conditioner never really worked all that. So we took the air conditioner out, and we got a whole new air conditioner. And he said, well, our handicapped people can't get in and out of any of the bathrooms. So we put a bigger door on the bathroom, and we made a handicap. We did all these different things. He, he would just walk around and go, well, there was always a leak in the roof right here. We put a whole new roof on it. When he got done, when they began to worship again in their church, he didn't have the same church that he started with. Because what happened was that when we rebuilt the church, we didn't just put it back to as good as it was. We made it better than it had ever been. And so as I'm reading the scripture here, God says, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. I will wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruin and rebuild it. I don't think that God just wants to rebuild our lives to the best they've ever been. I think he wants to rebuild our lives to be better than they've ever been. That's my hope in God. I will raise up the fallen booth. Of David. Normally we hear in the scriptures the house of David. David was a mighty king. He had a great house. In fact, he stood in his house and looked out on the, the tabernacle and said, God, you need to have a better house than me. And God said, it's not for you to build that. Your son will do that. But David had a great house. David built a great kingdom. David was well regarded for the house or the kingdom that he had built but it had fallen because of disobedience. Here, the language of the booth of David or the tabernacle of David, it, it refers to a tent. That it's in such disrepair, the nation is so broken, it's not even a house, it's just a, a, a fallen tent. I don't know if you've ever been camping and had your tent fall on you. I was a Boy Scout and we weren't all that good at it. <laughs> That's the image here. God is saying, you've, you've been broken down so low, but I am going to build you back up. I will repair the breaches. I will rebuild it like it's never been before. The people of Israel had broken God's laws. They had worshipped pagan gods. They had sacrificed the false idols. They lived in the way that they wanted to live. For eight and a half chapters, Amos had been speaking against them, but now he wants them to have hope believe that God wants to rebuild us by changing our hearts. He wants us to have hope because our hearts are different because of his presence. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has shown in our hearts God doesn't want our hearts to be places of darkness and brokenness. He comes into our hearts so that he can change our hearts. Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, in there, God commands us to have changed hearts because of his presence. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
How many of you can say that before you knew Christ, that described you perfectly? Any of you? How many of us would say that even now that we know Christ, that that describes us perfectly? Those of us who know us best can, can usually point out the flaws in that. But God wants to rebuild us. That is God's hope for us, that that is the kind of person we can be, and he works to bring that about. When we have a saving relationship with Christ, our hearts are changed. When we walk in obedience to the commands of Christ, our hearts are restored to wholeness, but they are even made better than they've ever been. No longer does sin reign in our lives, but Christ does. As we're obedient to him, it changes us. God isn't content to just change our hearts, though. He wants to change our minds as he rebuilds us. You see, changing our heart has an effect on our motives, our desires. But God wants us to even think differently. God doesn't want us to just act differently or want differently. He wants our minds to be affected, too. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If our hearts are changed by God and restored, then our minds also are changed and restored, and suddenly we begin to think differently. We don't have to constantly be told by the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or by somebody else in our life what the will of God is. We can figure it out for ourselves. We understand what God wants, and as our understanding of what God wants and our understanding of our heart's desires begin to be for the same things, we begin to live and act differently. I certainly hope that people in your life have noticed that since you've begun to walk with Christ, you're a different person. I've known people that were just radically changed and other people would come to them and say, how in the world are you this person? This is nothing like who you used to be. It's because their hearts and their minds have been transformed by God, not just improved. We could have went to that church and put the pews back and, and, and put the same color carpet in and tried to make it like it was, but we would have had to make sure that the, the roof still leaked at the right spot. We'd had to make sure that it still had all the same faults and failures as before. We were there to improve it. God wants that in our lives as well. As God lights shine into our, as the light of God shines into our heart, as He transforms our mind, we begin to take on new character. 2 Corinthians 3:18 says, "But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord." are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. God wants to transform us into His image. He doesn't want to make me the best Richard I can be. He wants to make me the best Him that I can be. His character, His nature living in me, living through me, so that I'm better than I could have ever been on my own. That's His hope that He rebuilds us. Have you ever looked at your life and said, you know what, there's some brokenness here. There's some pieces of me that, that don't measure up. God can change that. You have to surrender it to him. You have to allow him to work in your heart and in your mind. And he will transform you into his image. 
and we'll be different because of it. The second thing that God's hope does in your notes is that God's hope rewards. 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. How many of you like getting rewards? How many of you have a little tag on your keychain for Ingalls or some other store that if you, you check out every time and you beep, you know, beep it at the counter, it gives you some kind of rewards? Any of you got those on your keychain? Right? I used to do the My Coke rewards. If every time you drank a Coke, I'd, I'd drink a Coke or two a day at work, a Diet Coke, and I'd take the bottle cap, and you could type in the little code on the computer, and you'd get points. And I had coworkers who liked to buy 12-packs, and they would bring me their lids and their caps and, 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 the, and the carton codes and all that, and we'd put those in, and I figured it up one day. I put in probably two, three, four hundred dollars worth of Coke codes okay, into the computer, and you know what I got from it? I got a free 20 ounce. A dollar fifty in the Coke machine. It's not very rewarding, is it? But God says, if you're faithful to me, if you're obedient, if you follow after me, if you place your hope in me, I will reward you. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Any of you who have spent time working in a garden knows that there's a time when you go out and you till the ground and you plant your seeds, and then you have to wait, and you have to weed it and water it and all this, and eventually it begins to grow, and eventually it will begin to bear fruit. I don't know if any of you have ever had to pick okra. We loved it when we picked the last of the okra. It itches. If you've, if you've never had to do it, it itches really bad. But there would come a time when the okra would grow up, and mom and dad would say, go cut the okra. And in, in the Mississippi, July, 104 degrees heat with 90-something percent humidity, we'd put on long sleeve shirts and leather gloves. And we'd cut okra day after day until finally it was done. What God is saying here is that you're going to go out to your garden and you're going to begin to cut your fruit of, your, of the vine, pick the grapes, cut the okra, pull the, uh, the beans, you know, dig up potatoes, whatever you're doing. And you're still going to be harvesting that same crop when next year's planting season comes. That's what it means when it says the plowman will overtake the reaper. Your fields are going to be so full that that you're never even going to finish bringing it all in. That's what I call rewarding. That's what I call blessing from God. He says, I will reward your hope in me. I will make it so you're still reaping last year's harvest when it's time to plant this year's crops. His people had been through drought. His people had been through war. There were locusts that would come and eat up the crops. There were enemies who would come steal the crops away from them. They knew what it was like to be without. And God says, I will make it so you never have to worry about those things again. And God says, I will reward you. To the one who overcomes, there is great reward. 
In Revelations 2 and 3, to the letters to the churches from Christ, there's a common phrase, to the one who overcomes, I will give. To the one who overcomes, I will give. To the one who overcomes, I will give. And it's a wonderful promise. And you go back and you look through the Gospels and you listen to what Jesus has to say over and over. He says, you have a great reward prepared for you in heaven. You have a reward in heaven. You have a reward. That's an awesome promise. And I look forward to that day. I got five kids and a wife. They have to eat every once in a while, you know? What about now? And that's why I love John 10.10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life sometime later, but for now you're stuck. Is that what he said? John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I cling to that promise that Jesus wants me to have an abundant life even now. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus didn't come to make us all wealthy. Mike, that's why you're a pastor? You should get to be rolling in it all the time? Y'all see the Cadillacs that he drives, right? He's got a nice truck. I'll give him that. You don't become a pastor to be wealthy. You don't become a Christian because if you do, God's going to pour a bunch of money into your bank account. Are there some people whom God chooses to bless financially? Yes. There's people out there that are the poorest ones you will ever meet, but they will tell you that they have an abundant life through Jesus Christ even right now. They live every day not knowing where their next meal comes from, but they know that God has them squarely in his sights, that God is holding on to them, and God is rewarding their faith in him. Some of the greatest Christians I have known have been the poorest people on this earth, but they have been rich in Christ. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life begins now. We don't have to wait to heaven to get to heaven to understand that God pours into our lives even now. His hope rewards us even so that we can bless others. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul said to the church, God gives you what you need as a blessing to you, but then he also intends for it to change your value system so that you see the things he blesses you with as a tool to help other people. God wants his people to say, God has rewarded me not just for my own sake, but so that I can bless other people. And so maybe if God has rewarded you financially, you can write checks that other people in the church can't write. But there are some of you that maybe don't have any money left in the bank, but you have the gift of hospitality, and you can make people feel welcome in ways that others don't know how to do. Some of you can get up here and sing and play the piano and instruments so much better than I can do. And God has blessed you with the gift so that you can bless other people. The fruits of the Spirit are wonderful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are wonderful, but that's not all that he gives to us. He gives us the gifts of the Spirit as well. What are they for? The gifts of the Spirit are focused on other people, not me. 
God rewards us as we are obedient to him, as we place our faith and our hope in him. He rewards us with the things that we need, not just for ourselves, but even to be a blessing to other people. Israel wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. And that's a normal thing to worry about. God said, I am sufficient to make sure that you're taken care of, but also that you can bless other people as well. That's why he gives us abundance. Not so that we heap it up for ourselves, but we share it with others. Our hope redefines our value so that God's reward is our delight. And when his reward becomes our delight, we'll want to share that with others. What do you need to hope in God for today? What part of your life do you need to trust God to reward you in? Finally, God's hope replants. The third point in your bulletin. God's hope replants. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. Now listen to this. I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord. I love hearing that. I will plant you, and you will never be uprooted, says the Lord. That, to me, is a great promise. I know what it's like to be uprooted. I know what it's like to move around. I know what it's like to feel like, where, where is my, my home really at And God says, I will give you a place where you will always be secure and my presence will never be taken away from you. I had a plant, I had a cactus that my third grade Sunday school teacher, Miss Peggy, gave me. And why in the world she chose to give all of us boys in the class a cactus, I don't know. But it was this little cactus, it was about this tall. And she put it in a pot, it was a colorful little pot. And she said, all you have to do is put it in the window and water it when it starts to get a little dry. And so I did that. I put it in the window of the kitchen, and I would put a little water in it, and it would perk up, and it'd be all great. And a few weeks later, I'd go, oh, <laughs> hey, look at my plant. It's a little dry. And I put a little water in it. Seven years. Seven years I had this plant, okay? I was eight when I got it. I had it for seven years Almost half my lifetime, I had taken care of this plant. I love this little plant. We didn't have conversations. We didn't play in the yard or anything like that. It's just a plant, right? But I love this little plant. It was special to me, and it came from a special person, and, and I love this little plant. And my parents knew that I loved this little plant. It was a nice little plant. They liked having it there, too. Well, my dad got this bright idea. He wanted a terrarium. Do y'all know what that is? I didn't know what it was until he got one. He got a terrarium. It's a big plastic bubble with dirt in it, and you can grow tropical plants in a cold environment. I lived in Mississippi. It wasn't that cold. My dad put this terrarium out back, and he got some Venus flytraps, and he put Venus flytraps and some other exotic little plants in it. And he decided, and I don't know why, that the perfect place for my cactus was his terrarium. And so he transplanted, he uprooted my cactus from its nice little bowl it had lived in for seven years and placed it in its terrarium and, ah, look there, it it just looks so nice there with the other plants. And he put the lid on it and he put it outside in the sun. And it was hot. And I came home from school or wherever I'd been, I, I think it was summer, and we pulled the lid off so I could check on my plant and guess what? That thing was as dead as could be. I was brokenhearted. You killed my plant. I've never found another cactus like it. So, no, I don't have a cactus in the kitchen window. 
My dad uprooted the plant. He put it in a place it didn't belong, in an environment where it couldn't thrive. The plant died. There are times in our lives when maybe we've felt that way. There's no way I can survive where I'm at. I feel like I'm just not where I need to be. I feel like I'm in a place where if I stay here, I'm not going to make it. And God says, I can put you in a place where you will always thrive, not just survive. I will plant you myself, and you'll never be uprooted. You never have to live in fear of what's going to come because I will plant you in my presence. And in my presence, there's no need to worry, and there's no need to be afraid. I will be there with you. I began to study this and I said, what exactly does it mean that God will plant us? And what I found was he uses the same language in Hosea. He says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. If you look all through Hosea, God is using the image of marriage and unfaithfulness in marriage to show his relationship to his people. So imagine a loving spouse, in this case a husband, whose wife has been unfaithful and she's wandered away trying to find her own place of happiness away from her beloved. But her beloved comes to her and says, come home, I will bring you home and I will make you loved again. That's the image of God. He says, I will plant you myself. I will bring you home to me. I will call you my people. You will call me your God. What a beautiful image that God will plant us in a place where we never have to worry about losing his presence. His presence casts out our fear. Back in uh, Joshua, Joshua told, uh, God told Joshua, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The writer of Hebrews repeats that promise. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? God's hope replants us so that we can always have confidence in his presence. He gives us a new hope that rebuilds our lives so that we reflect his image. He gives us a reward so that we can begin to understand his blessings, to to take advantage of them, and then to share them with others. And now he replants us so that we're always in his presence. We always have access to him. As we are obedient to him, we have this lasting relationship. I've lived in at least three towns that had severe natural disasters. I told you about the flood in West Virginia. I've been through tornadoes in Alabama, in Oklahoma, where I saw entire towns wiped down to nothing but foundations. And those people, they had to figure out, what are we going to do? And I saw people whose entire houses, their cars, their jobs, everything was literally blown away or washed away, but they still had hope in God. They had never lost his presence. They weren't afraid because they knew he was with them. Is that the kind of hope that you have today? God, I am planted by you. Never again will I be uprooted. I am confident in you as my God. 
So this morning I asked the question, what effect can God's hope have on your life? Do you need a God who rebuilds today? Do you need a God who rewards? Do you need a God who replants? He's right here in front of us. Place your hope in him. Live life according to his word. Listen to his will for your life and obey him in all that you do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a hope. We know that there are times when we have lived away from your will. But Father, when we turn to you, when we call upon you, you don't give up on us, Father. You draw us closer. I pray this morning that we would understand your hope and we cling to it with all that we are. That we could have your blessings, not just later in heaven, but even right now here on this earth. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. Y'all are dismissed. God bless you.